Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. So we're continuing our series this morning on life in the kingdom, the Sermon on the Mount, and it's been a couple minutes since we've taught from this passage, so let me just reframe it again really quickly for us. Um, math, in the book of Matthew, it says that Jesus revealed secrets that had been hidden from the foundations of the world. He revealed secrets that have been hidden from the foundations of the world. And one of those secrets is that the kingdom of heaven would not come to earth all at once. It wouldn't come immediately, but rather it would start with small, seemingly insignificant little movements while gradually growing in size and power. That's the way the kingdom that God chose to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. He said it's like a mustard seed. A tiny little seed that doesn't look like much, and then you put it in the ground, it dies and grows, and it produces a tree bigger than bushes that, tr- that birds come and build their nest in the air of it. It starts small, insignificant, which is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a small, insignificant little place. He was raised in Nazareth. Nathaniel said, what good comes from Nazareth when he heard the Messiah was from Nazareth? These tiny little places. In Jesus' day, you know, one of our privileges, should I grab another microphone or is that, am I, am I hearing that or are you guys hearing that? They're trying to figure it out back there. I see him. I think it's just, you want me to get a step back or okay? All right. It won't bother me if it doesn't bother you. If it bothers you, then um, raise your hand and tell me. So one of the privileges we have as Christians is to to pay attention to where the kingdom is emerging in the world around us. And as we see where the kingdom is emerging in the world around us, we know where to follow and to join in God and his work. In Jesus' day, it was much more obvious where the kingdom was emerging because really strange things would happen around Jesus. Like blind people would start seeing and deaf people would start hearing And lame people would start walking. And dead people would start living. It was really, really obvious where the kingdom was emerging, where this kingdom of heaven was coming to earth. In scripture, we see bursts of miracles clustered around really important moments in redemptive history. So in really important moments in the Bible, there are bursts and clusters of miracles around those moments to authenticate what is happening in the kingdom to say that God is doing something really, really important here. He did that in freeing the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He did that uh, when Jesus was here. Um, He did that when Jesus gave that power to the apostles to authenticate the message of the kingdom. And those things still happen today, but it's definitely not the norm. It's not supposed to be the norm today. So how is the kingdom of heaven supposed to be made evident today? What are we supposed to look for? And if you're not a Christian and you're searching and you're exploring to see if this is the real thing, I'm glad you're here. Um, And I want to help you see what you should be looking for to see if it's the genuine article of the kingdom of God. 
So here it is in your notes, the first thing, if you have a bulletin, if you don't have a bulletin, would like one, you could probably grab one in the back, uh, in the lobby table. Um, you can follow along. The first statement in your bulletin is the kingdom of heaven is made evident by the light of God's goodness shining through our character. It's made evident by the light of God's goodness shining through our character. Here's what Jesus tells us at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, in verse, uh, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So people ought to see genuine goodness in you as evidence that the kingdom of heaven is emerging in your life and in the spaces around you because of that. The end game that God has for his followers is that we have wise and loving hearts that are deeply at rest in Christ. That's the end game. That's what I believe a mature Christian looks like. And it, there's some stuff to go through to get there. But at the end game, what he's moving us towards is people who have wise and loving hearts who are deeply at rest in Christ. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us practical case studies in how to live in such a way that the goodness of God shines through our lives. And today we're talking about, you ready? Oaths. We're talking about taking oaths. Now, when I first, when I first read through this on Tuesday, I was like, I've got to talk for a half an hour on taking oaths. Now, I know... Um, some of you, this is probably a major hiccup in your life, and you've probably been waiting two and a half years for me to address this very vastly important and widespread issue of our lives of taking oaths. It seemed odd, and I wasn't even really sure how to talk about it, but as God always does, when you dig into Scripture, um, the thing that you want to skip over the most is probably where the treasure is. So we stayed with it, and we're going to talk about taking oaths and why this is important and what it looks like to have goodness in your life through this strange practice of taking oaths. All right, so I'm going to read Matthew 5, 33 through 37. You can either just listen along. You can read along on your devices. There's free Bible apps on, uh, on your phone, I'm sure. Um, or you can follow in, in your paper Bible. Or just listen. Here it is. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Jesus talking, the sovereign interpreter of the law, the only true interpreter of the law. He says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. First, what is Jesus prohibiting here? What is he saying that we shouldn't do? Is Jesus prohibiting just saying, I swear to God, I swear to God? Is that what he's prohibiting? I, I don't think so. I don't think that should probably be a normal part of our speech, but um, I don't think that's what he's saying because Paul kind of does that a couple times. In Galatians 1.20, Paul says in kind of a parenthetical statement, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Kind of sounds like he's saying, I swear to God. 
He does the same thing in, in the, to the Corinthian church in one of his letters. So I don't think that's necessarily what he's saying. Is he talking about not taking an oath in court should, as Christians? That's an oath. Should we not take an oath in court, put our hand on the Bible and raise our other hand? And There are some Christian sects that believe that, like Mennonites believe that, Quakers believe that. I think Tolstoy believed that, that you shouldn't do that. It's, I don't think that's what he's saying either here. What about making deals with God? How many, am I the only one who has ever said, God, if you get me through this, I promise I will, yada, yada, yada. I have like seven of those, and I don't remember any of them, which is probably not good. You're like, and you're preaching to us about this? I don't think, I think God's forgiven me of that, and I won't do it again. I don't think exactly that's what he's saying. Um, if I were you, learn from me and be very hesitant to do something like that. But if you do, do your best to follow through. Uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, he gives allowance to it. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. So Moses is saying, just don't do it. Then you don't have to try to worry about those seven things that you told God you would do, that he's forgiven me for. So what does Jesus prohibit here? When I was in high school, um, I had this best friend growing up from fifth grade on, Jeff Chapman, would pick me up for, uh, for school in the morning. At, let's just say it was 7.30. We lived on Oak Hill Road, and uh, he would pick me up in his, his Bronco, and I thought it was always so cool going to school in his Bronco with him. It was just really neat. And I would wake up sometimes at 727 to Jeff honking in our driveway. And I was still asleep. And I would look out the <laughs> window and be like, I'm going to be there in one second. I'd just see him like, are you kidding me? So I would go down there and I would get in the, in the Bronco with him. I'm like, Chappy, tomorrow I'm going to be ready at 730. I swear to God, I will be here at 730. Now, I was invoking God's name because my word wasn't good enough. So it's not just merely the fact that I swore to God. It was the fact that I thought I needed to do that because my word wasn't good enough. I need to borrow a little credit from God. And then I was late the next day. This is what Jesus was speaking against. In Jesus' day, religious leaders actually created this hierarchy of things they could invoke to give credence to what they were saying. This is what Jesus was addressing. Don't swear by heaven. Jesus says don't do that because heaven's the throne of God. You've got no power, no authority there. Don't swear by earth. That's the footstool of God. Jesus is borrowing language from Isaiah. Don't swear by Jerusalem. That's the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your head. You can't make one hair white or black in the reading and the study for this week. Um, I read in rabbinic literature, there's the statement, if all the nations of the world should gather together to make white one wing of a raven, they would not be able to accomplish it. All the most powerful nations and thinkers of the world can't naturally change the wing color of a raven. So how can you swear by that? Jesus is speaking against the fact that they had devised this elaborate scheme of things to swear by in order to borrow credibility for what they were saying. 
Because apparently their word alone wasn't good enough. Jesus is speaking against that madness. And when Jesus speaks, as we're learning here at Southside, he does make things simpler, but somehow simultaneously, he also makes them harder. He makes them simpler, but more difficult. So what does he say? What's the answer to this? Don't make oaths like that. Don't do that. Simply say yes or no. Really simple. Excruciatingly difficult. In other words, let your character be such that you don't have to beef it up with oaths for people to believe that you'll do what you say you will do. Let your life align with your words. And this is really, really difficult to do. So we're going to get into application because it's pretty simple. Just do what you say you will do and you're good. You don't have to say I swear to God anymore. You're, you will be trusted. What's the goal of Jesus' teaching on oaths? The big picture is that we become trustworthy people that generally speaking we do what we say we do and, and there are extenuating circumstances and we need to have grace for those because sometimes you have to back out. We're not being letter of the law legalistic about this. I just had a conversation with one of my mentors on a Zoom conference this week, Matt Boyers, where I had to say, you know, like in March 2020, I was planning on going to Southern Africa with him and um, that kept getting delayed and delayed and we, we're funding with our church mission tithe, we're funding some church plants in Malawi and Southern Africa and I was supposed to go there and meet them and figure out how I can uh, train and assist them and I'm just looking at my life. We're supposed to go in August of this August now for two weeks and I'm looking at my life and I'm looking at things that I want to see begin happening in the fall at Southside and I'm just like, I know I said I was going to do that. That was like a year and a half ago and I just, I don't think I can do that. I don't think it's going to be wise for me to, to make this trip so I got to back out. So there's going to be circumstances like that. So we're not talking, don't be mean to people. You said you would do this. This is what Greg said. Don't be like that. Just in general... We do what we say we're going to do. Now, in a world that encourages overcommitment, this is really, really hard. So there are a lot of ways that we can apply this. I want to talk about one specific way. So follow my trail on this, and I'm going to give you the big picture application of this, and it's not going to seem to make a lot of sense, so I'm going to unpack it. The big picture application of how we can obey Jesus and simply saying yes or no is... Find your rest in Christ alone. This is in your notes. Find your rest in Christ alone before you speak, as you speak, after you speak. Let me help make the connection before you speak. How many of you have ever committed to doing something that A, you didn't really want to do, and B, you didn't have the time to do. Let's do a little practice. Raise your hand if you've ever committed to something that you don't really want to do that and you don't really have the time to do that. So this applies to all of us. What happens when you do that? You end up resenting the person that asked you. You end up resenting the fact that you have to show up at this thing. The people closest to you end up paying the price when you should be with probably other people. You're doing this other thing. 
And you miss out on the thing that God actually was inviting you into, and that's the worst. There was something else that God had for you, but you felt social obligation to say yes, and now you're missing out on this thing that, no, I had this. This fits your gifting, your resources, your time, your season of life, and you said yes to that, so now you got to do that. Why do we do this? Sometimes it's because we're worried that we're going to miss out on something. That's not a good reason to say yes to anything. But we often overcommit because we're worried about whether the people are going to think about us. You know, Christians, too, unfortunately, can be master manipulators. You know, I can be very manipulative, and you won't even know it most of the time. We can heap shame on people with the best of them. And oftentimes we say yes to something in order to alleviate the pressure in that moment. Ah, Greg, Greg asked, we really should, he's the pastor. And How many of you have done that? Like, not to me, okay, not to me, I don't want to hear that. But how many of you have done that in life where, yeah, sure, I'll help out with that. And then you walk away from the conversation, you're like, I hate my life. Someone told me when we're planting the church, don't do everything everyone's, do about 120th of what everyone says you should do, or else you're going to be leading a church that you don't even like. <laughs> what would it be like to be so at rest in Christ that other people's expectations of you just don't even matter? You're just acting out of sacrificial love, which is the proper motivation. We still sacrifice, we still serve, but not because we're coerced or we're complying with someone else's idea of what we should be doing, but because this is how God has led us to actually serve and sacrifice. And my suggestion is to create a buffer between their ask and your answer. So someone says, hey, can you lead, do whatever this, help with this, serve in this way? Um, you should consider all those because God is always inviting us to serve in some way. That's right. But is this what you're supposed to do? So give a buffer. Hey, I, um, I have it a personal practice of mine to wait 24 hours before giving an answer when I'm asked to do something. Because it probably means I have to not do something else in my life. Or someone else is not going to get attention that they would normally get. So I have to pray about that and think about that. And then really pray about that and think about that. And make a decision absent of the expectations you feel they might have for you. We say this probably every other month at Southside, that God gives you all the time, energy, and resources to do everything he's asking you to do. Not everything everyone else is asking you to do. Not everything that maybe you even want to do. He gives you all the time, energy, and resources to do everything he's asking you to do. So part of saying, of doing what you say you will do is saying yes to the right things. All right, the next one. What about finding your rest in God as you speak? Let's keep, let's stay with this example and unpack this a little bit more. So you go away and you sense that this is a great opportunity and I'm confident that the God will provide in the church people who will raise, you know, step into that and provide that act of service, which is important. Doesn't mean I'm supposed to do that, but it is important. But it's not me. So now you have to say no. What does it look like to be at rest in Christ when you say no? What do we typically do when we say no? I know because we all do it. What do we do? We give them a rundown of how busy our life is. It's as though we need to validate our decision for them. 
well, I, I would love to, but I just got this. You know, I, you know I, it's, my life is packed already. I really, really want to. I wouldn't be able to give the time and energy. Just We feel this pressure to validate our answer. Why can't we just say yes or no? When you don't have a culture of grace, you always feel like you have to explain yourself. Always. What if we were actually a culture of grace? Where, like Jesus, like we say all the time, we say what's true and stop talking. Why do I need to give you my schedule? Just trust me. If I could, I would. If I should, I would. But I'm not. Love you. What would it be like to be so at rest in Christ and confident in his love for you that you don't feel it necessary to always explain yourself? If you follow closely the life of Jesus in Scripture, you will see that everybody had an agenda for him. Everybody. His disciples, his family, the crowd, religious leaders, everybody. But he was so at rest in his father's love. That's why his father affirmed him before he started ministry at his baptism. He was so at rest in his father's love, and he was so aware and attentive to where the kingdom was emerging around him that he didn't care what other people's agendas were for him. The disciples were always giving him an agenda. He didn't hear it. I've actually heard it preached. Jesus never said no to anyone. I've heard that preached. Really? I'm not sure we're reading the same Bible. I mean, that sounds really good. It sounds like someone that a Sorry, pastor would say to somebody, Jesus never said no to anyone, and you shouldn't either. So I need 10 of you to volunteer to do this. Did Jesus really never say no to anyone? What about that time Jesus got up early in the morning, he had serving, been serving people late in the evening, and the disciples came and found him praying and alone. And there's a huge crowd back at the house. You need to get back to the house there's people waiting for you. There's ministry to do. That's like a built-in crowd. That's a core group. You could plant a church. There's a ton of people there. There's ministry to do. What does Jesus say? No. No. We're going to the next town. That's why I came, to preach the kingdom. Disciples are like, there's a need. After he healed some people, and they wanted to follow him, Jesus would sometimes say no. You can't follow me. Go back home. Show yourself to the priest. Get involved in the temple community. You're not allowed following me. I'll see you later. Without much explanation at all, what would it be like to just say, thanks for asking. I'm not going to take you up on that now. Done. No explanation. As Jesus puts it in today's passage, simply say yes or no. We don't want to become a community where we're constantly explaining ourselves. It's exhausting and neurotic. <laughs> we're feeling like we have to defend our decisions. Let's love one another and let's serve one another and let's love one another. So what about finding your rest in God after you speak? So the point of being able to say no to certain things is that you're able to say yes to the right things. And you won't be able to say yes to the right things if you say yes to everything. So after you say no to something, 
Be so at rest that you move on without shame or condemnation, despite what someone else might put on you. You don't hear that. I don't hear you. And after you say yes to something, be so at rest in Christ that you're able to carry it out with a sense of unhurried joy and quality. One of the hard lessons for me in life was learning that just because it looks like a really, really, really good opportunity doesn't mean it's supposed to be a yes. Uh, I was a part of a multi-campus large church and I was at the smallest campus and because of God's crazy generosity and his enjoyment of working through weak people, we had the largest youth group. I mean, it was, there was just some cool things happening. God was moving in some unique ways in our youth group. So um, they asked, the church asked if I would be in charge, the department head of all the student ministries of all the campuses. So I would have a staff of, you know, every youth pastor would work for me, all the, it was like a, with the interns, like 12 people or so, I would have a staff, I would have a, a seat at the table, be able to make big decisions with the church and sit in on some executive meetings of, this is a big church, man, this is as good as it gets for what I'm doing in student ministry right now. It's amazing. I get my office at the main campus and awesome. Except I wasn't supposed to do that, I don't think. I mean, God blessed us and used it in some ways, but I don't think I was supposed to do that. And I remember one of the pastors of the, one of the larger campuses came to Wadsworth and he took me out to, he came to take me out to lunch. And he's like, tell me about the ministry. And I told him all the things I was excited about that was happening, that God was doing in Wadsworth at the time. And he said, yeah, I thought. He said, I want to tell you a story. Now, this man used to work at NASA. He was literally a rocket scientist. He was an atheist, didn't believe in God like much of my early years. I was a functional atheist. He was an atheist, and he became a Christian, and now he's, he's amazing. He's a pastor. And we're eating enchilada verdes, and he's like, I want to tell you a story. He said, at NASA, there's some brilliant thinkers. There's some scientists that do some pretty amazing things, and um, when they're in the lab, it's like they're alive, they love it. They love discovering things. They love solving problems, which is what you do as a scientist at NASA. They, they love exploring and researching, and they're really good at it. Sometimes they're so good at it that supervisors come in and see that they're really good at it, and they say, hey, I'm going to make you a manager of other scientists. And you know what happens? And I was like, no, what happens? It pulls them out of the lab, and it puts them in an office. It gets them away from people and it puts them in front of a, it puts them in a boardroom of some sort and they gradually begin to hate their life. It's not what they signed up to do. They're a scientist. They're not a manager. And I was like, I recommend Enchilada Verde. This is really, really good. And it just, boom, went right over my head because all I saw was figured we'd get a good raise Figured I'd have a really cool office. Figured I'd be in some big conversations at the executive level of a megachurch. This is pretty darn awesome. And exactly what he predicted through that story happened. I need to be with people. I need to be teaching and pastoring. I don't need to be in a, in a, a boardroom. 
Sometimes you say yes to the wrong things because it looks better, but it isn't. The moral of the story is be the type of person who does what you say you will do by being so at rest in Christ that you say yes to the right things, by being so at rest in Christ that you don't over-explain yourself when you say no, and by being so at rest in Christ that the things you say yes to are done with a joyful quality. Receiving work and opportunities to sacrificially serve others as a good gift given to you from God. Doing what you say you will do without resentment. Let's pray. God, the ways that the way that you chose to have the body of Christ function is to give people different gifts. To give people different passions. To give people different ways to serve. To give people different convictions about serving. To give people different convictions about who to serve and when and how. And to see to it that everybody is served and everybody is serving. Without shame. For, doing, for not doing something someone else is doing. Without guilt. Without competing with one another. Without being hurt or frustrated when the other person isn't as convicted as I am about this. You see to it when we are functioning correctly as a church that every need is met and every person is involved. Help us, Lord, to become that version of the church in Jesus Christ and so to sacrificially serve and love one another in a way that glorifies the great name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.